0: Welcome to The Dialogue, I'm Suzanne St. John Crane. 12 million people cycle through local jails every year with more than 70% incarcerated pre-trial, meaning they've not yet been convicted of the charge for which they were arrested. The vast majority of those remain in jail because they can't afford to get out. I had the opportunity to speak with ALF Senior Fellow, Phaedra Ellis Lemkins, co-founder and CEO of Promise, an Oakland, California-based tech company focused on decarceration and working with government agencies to tackle the issue of mass incarceration. Phaedra and I spoke about how her upbringing, ALF experience, and work in the labor movement shaped her career path and her passion for equity. Can innovative partnerships between government and tech lead to safer and stronger communities? Let's listen. So, Phaedra, Class 16, Yeah. what pieces of the experience were memorable for you from your ALF fellows here? Um, hmm.
1: I think, uh, one, I really liked the group of people in my class. Yeah. Um, I have some longstanding friendships. I think Mark Jones was in my class, and I still see him really regularly and love him and enjoy him. Ditto. Um, Right? (laughs) Ditto. He's a great guy. Right? Um, And so I think it probably was a class. I also think our class was a group who organized, right? Like in a (laughs) non-traditional way. Uh, um, Really to think about kind of what programming was most helpful. And I think it was a tipping point for me personally thinking about what did leadership development look like and what networks existed and like what networks did you want to have? Right. So that to me was probably the most valuable thing that ALF did for me is it made me realize that Cross-sectional um, networks was really critical, right. and also that people who believed different things than I did could have inherently be inherently good people because I think when you're in politics and in social change, a lot of times you think like if you disagree with me, you're a bad human, and it was interesting to meet good humans who I thought had very bad politics.
0: You're a fierce leader. Thank you. I really I appreciate would... that. I don't feel
1: like that every day, so I appreciate you are that. Fierce. I appreciate leader. that. I appreciate that. You've won
0: yeah. recognitions like Forty Under Forty, in yeah. the Business Journal, and whatnot. And yeah. executive director of South Bay Labor Council at one point, representing yeah. over a hundred unions, a hundred ten yeah. union, ten thousand union members. So I have to ask, like, what key people and experiences a young person help shape your values? How did you come to be and be so fierce? Um, I, one, I appreciate the
1: compliment because I really don't feel that way all the time. Um, I think, one, unfortunately, I think trauma teaches you a lot, right? And I I grew up, my dad's very violent. I had a lot of, like, not great things happen to me as a kid. And I think I probably established pretty early on that I wanted to live my life differently, which was a guiding force for me, right? Part of why I didn't have a partner for a long time is because I was like, I just want to, like, not have anyone be violent or treat me poorly. I want to be not in an economic situation where I'm stuck. I want to make sure other people don't feel stuck. And so for me, I think it was largely trauma that shaped me early on. Mm -hmm. And then I think the labor movement in Silicon Valley is a magical place. And I now have worked in a lot of places that would be considered magical to other people, but the labor movement has some of the most amazing humans. It's the first place I met good men. Mm -hmm. It was the first place I met men who were like authentically good people and who were for you and righteous leaders. And so I think from going to kind of a trauma childhood to college, because I went to the labor Movement when I was 19, and I think that shaped me, just that sense of, like, good people get together and do good things. Right. Everyone from our leaders who were members, who were janitors, who were struggling, working two jobs, putting their kids through school, to, like, Cindy Chavez, who I was an intern for, um, and Bob Brownstein, who I will love for the rest of my life, who just <laughs> were, like, just for you and good and it helped me when I went to work at Greenfall because I was just like, oh, wow, these are like, it, it yeah. gave me a
0: strong foundation that I think people who've lived through trauma need. One milestone in your career thus far, anyway, has been just the, the effort at working partnerships to expand healthcare for yeah. kids, right? In the county, expanding it to 160,000 kids. It's been replicated. Yeah. How did you, this is a question I've been looking forward to asking you, how did you work within those existing stuck public sector systems, very frustrating to many, Uh, slow moving at times to really get this done?
1: Um, Well, one, I think Cindy was incredible. She was on the city council at that time. I think Amy and the labor movement was great. And Bob, like Bob is the like chief architect, right? And I don't think he gets enough credit for that. Um, I also think it was a good, it was a, a fight about defining who the labor movement was. And like what we were for, because I think we'd been having a lot of fights that didn't, where people didn't understand what we were about, and it's hard if you say I'm going to use the power of the labor movement to help people that are not our members, which is what Children's Health Insurance did, is but we recognize if we can make the case to people that the labor movement having power means that other people win, not just union members, that that was really important, and so I think um, working in those systems, one is we had incredible power to elect people. Right. So people knew we weren't going to do something that was going to get them unelected. Um, two is we were using tobacco money. And people were literally using tobacco money to build bigger offices, build jails. And so the idea that you would do that was crazy. And I think then we had foundations that really stood up, the endowment and uh, Blue Shield and others, who said, we're willing to put money in so we can go to the public sector and say, we're going to offer you money. Right. And then we have an idea that we think is a winning idea. And then um, we've had to fight some people who are fellows, so I will not talk about them as elected officials. <laughs> it um happens. Right. And I think then when you have morality, public will, a good policy and money to add to it, I think those things are really important. And I also think it was important because the city was not in the business of healthcare. Right. And so it was like that was the it was like a moral debate, which is very much easier in the public sector than a pragmatic debate. This
0: is really, you know, evidence of a reoccurring value and thread in your career. Yeah. Um, in fact, I wanted to ask you about the, in 2003, you led the launch of Partnership for Working Families, a national coalition dedicated to building power and reshaping the economy and urban environment for workers and communities. Tell us, what, what were you able to accomplish in that, in that effort during that time that you're most proud of?
1: Um, I think the fact that people think living wages and community benefits agreements are like a common thing is probably the most important. Because when we were doing it, like the Mercury News did an op-ed, we were going to destroy the local economy with living wage, community benefits agreement. The mayor then, the economic development person, like just wrote how this would destroy development in Silicon Valley. And so now that one is I saw that same person in a different context because he was in a different state. and He was like, they're advocating for community benefits, which I totally appreciated the irony yes. of. <laughs> um uh, but I think the idea that the i that public sector resources should be used for good, and that that is scalable and acceptable, is something now that we take for granted, which we certainly did not take for granted when we were doing that. When we were, I mean, the Chamber of Commerce was against us. I had sat down with the head of the op eds. I mean, the um, opinion pages, like you know, they were horrific.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. you changed the the conversation,
1: right. And like when we did airport living wage, they supported it. And so the idea that we'd gone from this like awful labor movement. You know, doing these crazy ideas, and now that both the community that we were in in San Jose, but then also across the country, that really the partnership for working families was about how did you scale those ideas and take them to other places? And now that like I'm not in the labor movement, the people that originally started in it aren't in it anymore, and that those ideas exist and teams exist, um, and that no one knows we did it, which is the best. That means that the ideas become someone else's, which I think is the the kind of work I want. The best achievement is where it's like it's not Phaedra it's not um Madeline it's not uh, any of the people who were Donald or any of the people there like now the story is the people who are there now yeah. which means it's much more successful to me.
0: Then you moved on for uh, to uh, Green for All let's talk about that you joined yeah. the CEO in 2009. Uh, Green for All was built to form a coalition of a broad range of groups many yeah. of whom are not known for their engagement in climate and energy issues so what yeah. brought you there?
1: Uh, my friend Van uh, I was um, thinking about Obama had just been elected, and I was very excited, and I was like, oh, I want to go to D.C. And then my nieces came to live with me, and it changed my life because I went from being like a single, like, oh, yay, I'm going to go to D.C. and be part of this change, and all of a sudden I had kids. And, um, and so it just meant that I wasn't in a place where it made sense to be going to Washington, D.C. So I knew I was ready to leave the labor movement, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, and my friend Van wanted to go to the White House, and um, <laughs> we always do it worked out better for me. Um, and, um, and he is just incredibly remarkable, inspiring, and I believed in the vision, and I think more than just the vision for the work, I had started um, really thinking a lot about uh, forgiveness work and the way in which we work with one another. We'd had this vote in the labor movement, and we won nine to one, and one of our staff was like, oh, talking about that one person? Mm. Um, And I just thought, like, that can't be who we are, right? Like, we just transformed. We got to watch these leaders do this incredible work where now someone wasn't going to be homeless anymore, and a woman got to stay in her apartment. And this, like, the narrative of our work should be, like, leaders standing up for their families out of love and out of compassion and out of justice. And it just felt like that moment wouldn't exist in San Jose. I ended up in D.C. a lot, which I didn't anticipate. And we worked a lot with people like the Congressional Black Caucus, and part of what we learned is that is that the environmental movement had not done a good job of uh, talking to people. Like, the environmental movement would have been fired if it were a company, because the people most <laughs> impacted, they ignored, right? It's like, who's most right. likely to be? Right. And it, 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 it is an issue of environmental justice, but it's also just the basic, like, um, uh, Emmanuel Cleaver, who's an amazing Congress member, he, his mom um, had died of an asthma attack. Or I forget who it was. No, the daughter of someone had died of an asthma attack. and. And on the front lawn, and, like, people have these incredible stories of how their life has been impacted by climate, yeah. and that those folks are not leading or at least connected at that time was incredible to me. And so I felt lucky that we got to say, hey, if you are negatively impacted or by this, and we, you should get to be a leader in this movement.
0: And that was part. Of the and you guys had a huge win too with the American Clean Energy and mm-hmm. Security Act. Talk to us about how mm-hmm. you were able to uh, include that eight hundred and sixty million dollars for green job training. And
1: um, yeah, I mean, I think there is a lot of like really good victories, which were really about co- coalitions of different types of people. I also think Van deserves so much credit because I think what he understands that very few people do, at least at that time, was um, how important storytelling and a narrative is, and the idea that. It's not, like, you know, like, I always joke with him that he, uh, he can be, like, you know, I would have been in a place many years ago where if I saw someone I disagreed with, I'd be like, oh, devil, like, we shouldn't talk to them. And he would be like, let's all come together and pray, or, <laughs> yeah. like, find peace. Kumbaya. Kumbaya. <laughs> um, but then that worked, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that, I think the reason those victories happened, and I think even he's, uh, you know, just some of the stuff, this First Step Act, is is because the recognition that, like, even if you disagree with someone, like, the ability to be able to come together and run a common issue is really critical,
0: I think, as you think about ALF yeah. um, and others. And I just think he lives that. Let's talk about Prince for a second. Yeah. Prince. So I had been on the job maybe a month at ALF, and I remember, well, I remember getting the news that he had passed, mm-hmm. and I'll just say that as a, I mean, I've been a musician for 20 years, and I'm one of the ladies of the 80s, right? <laughs> so he and Purple Rain just totally... Had, yeah. a, had a huge influence on me. And I was sitting in my office and my coworker, who's about my age, we got the news, and it was like, just hit us like a brick wall. I mean, it yeah. was, it was um, very tragic. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was watching CNN that night, and of course Van Jones was talking about Prince, and he said, you know, emphatically, uh, talking about your role in, in yeah. his life. And I said, God, that name, I know that name. <laughs> I think she's a senior fellow. What? Tell me what you're willing to share just about what you guys learned from each other.
1: Yeah. I mean, I learned so much from him. Yeah. Um, the first thing is I never had someone that I think I worked with that I disagreed with so much and felt so loved by. And, um, you know, I came from a world where I was like, okay, these are the things that we need to do. And I hadn't really worked with musicians before. And... Um, and what I learned is like I believed in lines, and he believed in no lines. <laughs> and so, um, but I think what was most important is is one is he believed that there would be a revolution, and it would be led by women and women of color. And so he was like so for you, like just for you. I remember I was um, uh, a, a lot of what I spent my time doing is making sure he um, was good, and um, and so. I would sometimes be the one who had hard lines. Like, he would call me and be like, this is what's happening. And he's like, I'm going to tell them to come to you. And my job would be to say no because he didn't want to say no. Um, And so people would get angry. And someone was like, I'm not coming to Paisley Park if Phaedra's there. And he just was like, then you're just not coming. Wow. And um, to me, it felt like I had leaped in faith and always trying to have his back. And to be able to think, like, that's my job to say no when he doesn't want to. But then to feel the reciprocal of, like, when you do that, I'm for you, was really, really powerful. And, um, and so I think believing in women of color, I think believing in me, um, and he, like, he, what was so brilliant about him is he, you would think things were unplanned. Right. But then you would realize how much time and effort he took into planning things. And, um, and the thing I always tell my kids is, like, he practiced every day. Right. And, wow. and people like, you don't get, you're not him. And he practiced every day. And the fact that you don't practice, like, you don't, I, at 57, he should have been done practice, right? He didn't have yeah, to right, practice right. every day. Yeah. Um, but probably my favorite Prince memory is he kind of got mad at people. And so he did sound check himself. And I watched him sound check every instrument. <laughs> and I was like, oh, he's like, knows how to play every instrument on the stage brilliant. Right? Oh, and yeah. and um, uh, I had not been a student of music. I had, had not been a student of his. And I think watching that type of brilliance and being connected to it, it just changed me. And I, and I don't think I've ever been as sad in my life as when he died. In life, you very rarely have people who are just for you. And he was complicated and difficult and a lot <laughs> of things. Um, but I knew he was for me and I felt like I was for him. And so I think the idea that just... Became most clear is like now I don't have a lot of space and patience um, for people who aren't for me and I'm not for them. You just start to say, like, I only need like five people in my life or a small group of people (laughs) who are for me. And I just, my real prayer is that kids not just understand and this next generation not just understand his music. But they understand his commitment to women, his commitment to justice, his commitment to, like, he was the most radical human I've ever worked with. And I have worked in progressive politics. And it it is things like when we, um, there had been an awful uh, victory where the police had uh, killed a young black man. And he went off Twitter. And it was always interesting to me. Like, it was on CNN. Prince quit Twitter. And no one ever made the connection that it was, like, a form of (laughs) protest. and. But to him, it was just like, oh, I don't care. Like, I'm not going to be part of that system. And I looked at, like he, he pulled all his, all of his music off streaming services because he felt like philosophically what was happening there to artists and artists of color and the devaluing of content was harmful. Right. And then went on Jay-Z's title because he thought that was the vision of the kind of things that he had wanted to build that he saw people building. He made me way bolder because like I don't think I was ever so not liked as I have been connected to working with him <laughs> ever in my whole life.
0: not yeah, to saying no.
1: Right? <laughs> and uh, and also because he was so private. Like I think it, as women we think like, Oh, I need to explain why I'm saying no, or I need to, to do this. And I think the one thing I always try to do in his life and in his death is to appreciate his privacy and to realize like if someone else doesn't understand it, like that's okay. Yeah. Because the relationship is he and I, not them.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, so I just I just learned incredibly so much. And, and I look forward to a time where it's not sad to think about him.
0: Well, I want to talk about your latest endeavor, which, yeah. I mean, is so exciting what you're doing with Promise. And um, I won't even say it's an idea whose time has come. I mean, this yeah. is just ridiculously overdue. And, you know, you've got a lot of press about it. You've got significant investors and GCs, Rock Nation, and the yeah. uh, First Round Capital and whatnot. Yeah. So... Let me ask you this. From where you and your co-founders, Diana, yeah. um you. Yeah, that's uh, right. From where you guys sit, what are the ingredients, the political and cultural times that we find ourselves in right now that set an idea like Promise up for success?
1: Well, I mean, part of it is I feel like, you know, to, that it's common sense, right? Mm-hmm. It, to me, two-thirds of people in jail have not been convicted of the crime they were arrested for. That's insane, right? That's just insane that we incarcerate people who have not been convicted of a crime. And when you're in jail, you're more likely to take a plea deal or do something just to get out. Right. And what is uh, and just. Um, just unacceptable to me, is that you're most likely to be there when you're poor, black, or brown. Sure. Because you can't afford to get out. I also think the reality of the opioid epidemic is that people are starting to see people like in the Midwest are like, wait, this is happening in my community. Like, right. And I think when something happens to your child who's an addict, you don't see them as a criminal, right? You see them sure. as a victim. And so I think there's a big shift in people who see people not as criminals, but as victims. And unfortunately, I think that um, that too often um, people haven't understood. Like it's a system of people who are good people who've made bad decisions or who are in bad situations, and and so I think that's really important. So I think the time has come because one, I think the idea that you are in jail because you're poor, black or brown, I think people realize is unacceptable. Um, the idea that it's considered a violent felony to steal a cell phone is such an incredible waste of resources, and it's such a failure. Yeah. Right? It's not making. No one ever says, oh, they go to jail and prison and it helps them become better people. It's, right. it's, the system isn't designed to do that. The system is designed to keep people in the system.
0: So tell me what Promise is doing specifically, like the inner workings yeah. and what the strategy is.
1: Um, so governments are our clients and we work with them. There's two types of clients we work with. One are people who have what's called a pre-trial system, which is a way for people to get out of jail um, who haven't been convicted of a crime. And for those people who have it, we help make their system more efficient. So we provide an app to a person who's been arrested, so that they get court reminders, they can do check-ins, and that they can manage their experience. And then we give information to the government that says, hey, pay attention to these people, because most people do well. So you really just need to identify, if I have a caseload of a couple hundred people, how do I know who to check in on? So we say red flag for these folks, so that they don't get technical violations. Because most people end up back in jail for like technical violations or very minor infractions. Um, then there are people, or other type of clients, people who don't have those pretrial systems. So we're working with a sheriff in the Midwest where all the people we're working with are people that are in his custody. So we're working there to say, what's the system in which you assess how people get out? What are the conditions of release that you might have? And then how do we provide support to make sure they come back to court since technically they're actually in the custody
0: of the sheriff? Got it. I'll just say that ALF in 2016. I mean, we held a screening of Thirteenth at Netflix. So mm-hmm. Reed Hastings and others were uh, opened up a theater there for us to to Great. be able to screen this. We had like 130 people okay. in the network and whatnot go, and, and the police chief and a judge, and and it was a really powerful dialogue. And you know, as someone, let's say I'm 48 years old, I grew yeah. up in the Bay Area, right? Um, public schools for the most no. part, and I didn't know this narrative. Yeah. And I think the thing that was so I mean I read, I see things, I yeah. hear anecdotally yeah. right, but what was so powerful about that movie is the way that the director of DeVernay, connected the dots yeah. through history, yeah, and so I bring this up just because I was so angry, yeah as our, everybody in the theater was pretty much angry and it's like, okay. how in God's name is this not yeah how is the new Jim Crow not required reading for every law student yeah, and every um senior in high school for Christ's sake, right yeah. yeah. Um, and I went on to learn. I read that. I'm, in the, you know, yeah. kind of educating myself on this. How do you stay balanced? Um, it's a great question. Um, so one
1: is I exercise, which I think is really important. Um, two, I, um, not like five people. I remind myself that I only really care about what a certain number of people think about me. Um, and as long as those people feel like I'm doing right, then I'm okay. Like, I really worry if people I love don't think I'm doing right, if that ever happens, or when it does, like, you're being too mean or whatever. Like, okay, <laughs> readjust, readjust. Um, and um, then I think, like, I take my mental health really seriously. Like, I think I was very depressed after Prince died. I think, um, and I, it, but, but what it reminded me of is that, like, as corny as it sounds, like, really, like, love, family, that's all you really have and as long as I think I feel like the people I love feel loved by me I'm acting out of integrity and I'm doing what I think will make the world a better place I really can't ask much more of that for myself this world is so hard right now like it's just like feels like just bad stuff happening and so I just remind myself that that to the extent that I can't act out of love to the extent that I pay more attention to the bad stuff and the good stuff like I only become a negative force and so I just try not to do that. But certainly when I meet people who we met with a sheriff in the county that shall running nameless in the Bay Area. But what was shocking to me is how not progressive the Bay Area was mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how like this sheriff in Cass County, North Dakota is more progressive than many of the sheriffs I've met in the Bay Area. Wow! And he's saying like, I'm going to let people try to figure out how to get people out who are in, my, in jail. It's not a judge. It's not a pretrial program. He's trying to figure out because he realizes those people should not be in jail and that's incredible and he is and the, to the extent that people think that bay area is innovating there are amazing places we have clients in the bay area but but there is a lot of innovation happening outside and for me that's balanced because if i were to look and say here's this white sheriff from cass county north dakota versus like progressive man of color sheriff i would go like oh these are my people and i just remind myself no like That's my people. Like, he's like, I'm trying to liberate people. This is an unfair system. This is not, and I'm like, yeah. So I think I have to say balance book personally so that I can act out of the right things, but also professionally because it is, you know, like we are working in Kentucky, North Dakota. We're talking to Alabama, Nebraska. Like, the fact that innovation is coming when we were in Nebraska, they said, This is a racially unjust system. And like, and I was like, Yes, it is. I was like, (laughs) Yes. But the idea that they were like, we have to correct for these racial injustices. And I was like, this is a white woman on the board of supervisors there who's like, we cannot let this continue. And I was just like, oh, wow. Like, I have to be open to the fact that change may not come from the people I think it comes
0: from. I was on the board of a homeless services organization in Santa Clara County and sort of... um participating but not leading in uh-huh. um, the whole change from, you know, putting a band-aid on the problem of homelessness to yeah. the Housing First movement. Yeah, And I remember my dear friend and actually ALF classmate, Jen Loving, said to me, how do we get people to care? Mm-hmm. If it's not directly impacting you, how do you get people to care? And I've, yeah. you know, just watched the, the progression of homelessness in the mainstream, homelessness being talked about all the time in all the media sources in, in yeah. the Bay Area, but just looking in San Jose in particular. So, I started was thinking about that as we were talking about this problem, right? How do we raise the profile of the epidemic of mass incarceration, in particular men, brown and black men? How do we raise that epidemic so that there are pathways for public engagement? People care, right? How do we do that?
1: I think a lot about it, and I also think about how we have to make the case for things that aren't popular, right? Like I look at this guy in Chicago, Um, Jesse Smollett, who would be a like, who has never been convicted of a crime, is in a high risk. And I look at the anger, like people are like, he should be in jail, and I'm like, no, that's actually not the kind of person that should go to jail. And and I think we have to have those type of conversations, even about things like the one thing I think we can't do is just have safe conversations. Like the innocent person, the person who people are all like, oh, it's a mom with like four kids. I think we have to have conversations that people who shouldn't be in jail should not be in jail. Like jail is not the answer and there are a lot of ways to be punished that are not keeping people behind bars. And um, so, so one thing is I think we have to have unpopular conversations. Because um, I think people actually know the system is broken. I think people make a decision a lot that their safety is important and that there's dangerous people behind bars. And the challenge is our system is not good at putting dangerous people behind bars. Our system is good at putting poor people behind bars. And so to the extent that we've created a system that institutionalizes, poor people and people of color, that is a system we have to advocate against. And that's where I think we have to be clear because I'm always shocked when we talk to people and they're like, yeah, I know innocent people die, but it's this. And I'm like, I feel like when we should stop when we say we know innocent people die and say like, yeah, we should stop. Like there's not an yeah. and then yeah. we should yeah. fix it. And the fact that we know, like, you know, when you look at this um, young man who ended up raping this woman at uh, the Stanford swimmer, Brock Turner, and then you look and you're like yeah part of why he got out is because he has a family, he has resources and he has stability. But if he were black or brown, he would never have had that experience. And so the system just recognizes the way it assesses people says he's low risk, but someone who came out of foster care they're high risk because they don't have a family, they don't have a place to live. Like you know like it's the the system doesn't measure risk, it measures stability and usually family stability. And so I think that it's important, one, I think the fact that you're doing this, I'm so happy to hear that ALF is doing that. And I think the more that we have conversations about what the impact is and what the system does, and I think a lot about about how the private sector, what I like about the private sector is mostly it's like, did you make profit, good or bad? OK, did you harm people? That's also bad. But did you make profit? Yeah, it's crazy. And <laughs> the criminal system is such a failure because it's like, did you stop people from doing another crime? It fails. It fails. It's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. it fails. The oh, punishment does not work. And yeah. so it's like, even if you philosophically disagree, the thing that everyone agrees on is the place you are most likely to go to turn into someone who's going to go to jail is jail or
0: prison. What does success look like for Promise for you in the next few years?
1: Yeah, success for me is I just want more people out of jail who shouldn't be in jail, and I feel like I want tech companies to solve problems of real people. Like it's great that we have technology that gets you a dog walker or a nanny (laughs) or a valet parker, Um, but like that's not what most people I grew up with are worried about. It's like how do I stay in my house? How can I afford my bills? My car's breaking down. Uh, my family's in crisis, um, and, and I think to the extent that technology doesn't solve any of those problems,
0: it's fundamentally broken. Which speaks to how diverse tech companies right. are or aren't and right. their lived experience. Right? right.
1: So success to me is not just solving, I think, um, and contributing to some of the amazing work that's happening to reduce um, incarceration, but it's also creating the space and place for people who think about the world and to solve the problems that they deal with. Because I, we raised a lot of money, and people were like, oh my god, this is so great. You're the list of like number X of black women who've raised money. And I was like, that is such a failure that, that there's a list of so few black women who've raised over a million dollars, which is such a low threshold for venture capital. Venture mostly fails, right? Yeah. And so it's much more likely that we will fail than succeed. Um, but you're changing the narrative. Right. And, but I think that my hope is that one of us will. And to me, that's an incredible victory. If not me, if someone else, I, I would, certainly I want it to be me, but if not, and we create the space for someone else, then
0: it's worth it. It's a win. It's a win. I'm really grateful that you continue to have the courage to have uncomfortable conversations. Thanks. And you model taking care of yourself and really as a leader through that. Thanks. So can't wait to see what you do next, Phaedra. Yeah, I'm so Thank happy to you. spend time together. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. ALF is passionately committed to building diverse networks of leaders focused on personal and community transformation in order to create an inclusive and thriving Silicon Valley. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please visit us online at alfsv.org. This podcast was made possible by our Leadership Circle members, Susan Orr, Randy Pond, and Lisa Sansini. Our class matchers, Greg Avis, Jim Baer, Ned Barnhold, Eric Benamou, Shelley Brown, Ann DeBusk, Neil Dempsey, Chuck Getchke, Nancy Handel, Dottie Hayes, John Holler, Karen King, Greg King, Jim Koshland, Larry Keekler, George Marcus, Webb McKinney, C.S. Park, Steve Smith, Greg Papadopoulos, and Charmaine Wormenhoven. And special thanks to our 2019 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Class 15, Eris Communications, The Sobrato Family Foundation, the Knight Foundation, HP Inc., and the David and Lucille Packard Foundation.